welcome back to Maybe Not Tawei, uh, our second episode now. Uh, so thank you very much for coming back uh, again to spend some time with me and the official podcast of The Greatest Wrestler Ever Project. Um, I, I apologize. I, I know I said it would be monthly, and technically we're still monthly, uh, but it looks like going forward it will be more like every six weeks instead of every four weeks. Um, that comes due to a change in the way I was doing the uh, top 25 lists of each year. And uh, I'll talk about that more in the segment where I do my top 25 list. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to do a little bit of shout out to um, all the uh, all the amazing users on the uh, Discord of the Greatest Wrestler Ever Project. Uh, I, I see new people coming in all the time. There's so many conversations. Uh, I can't keep up with it all. I wake up and there's like eight different topics going <laughs> throughout the night that I, I, I can't handle because we've got a really worldwide, um, worldwide group there. Uh, and it, it's not all GWE. There's a lot of current talk uh, and the, the uh, politics sections <laughs> really going well as well. Uh, so it, it's all nice to see, uh, but... Uh, if you're listening to this and you aren't on the Discord, you might want to you might want to sign up. Um, lots of great conversation about everything there, uh, especially GWE, but also about uh, that's where like the main um, place for the watch parties are, and the watch parties have been a lot of fun. Every Saturday, uh, we're getting together and watching a different wrestler and chatting about it for a couple hours. Um, the last month or so, we've had uh, Arisa Nakajima, Tsubaka Fujimoto, Lex Luger, the Barbarian. It's, uh, um, I, I forget, Okada was recently. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Um, we're going to be taking a break for the, the holiday season and coming back in January. Uh, still on Saturdays, but a slightly later time due to... Uh, my work schedule, <laughs> but uh, we're going to come back with Shikusa Nagayo. Uh, so that's that's a big one uh, in January. So look forward to that. Um, and another small note before we get into the episode, uh, which is a great one. We got um, the top 25 list is 1997 this time, which was an amazing year. Uh, we also have Matt Feuerstein from Through the Years. Uh, he's coming in to talk about uh, Ring of Honor, which is on its deathbed, and it's kind of impact on the wrestling scene and how we view great wrestlers and what are the great wrestlers from Ring of Honor. Uh, so that's an interesting conversation to stay tuned for that. And obviously, uh, we have questions and answers. Um, if you listen to the first one, uh, the slight changes here, which I think are going to be a lot better, is that uh, after this intro... We're going to do the first half of my top 25 list and then go to Matt and then come back for the end, the, the top 10 of my top 25 list. And then we'll go to questions and answers. So um, a little bit of change of the format, but I think for the better. So uh, without further ado, let's go all the way back to 1997 for my top 25 wrestlers of that year. Stay tuned. Let mo. Here we come. About to fucking explode. Let mo. 
boss. Come on, come on, what? Hot shit. <laughs> Check it out. All right, and we're back uh, with the first half of my top 25 list of greatest wrestlers for 1997. So I alluded to it in the intro, but I've had a little bit of a change of procedures, uh, which kind of slowed down this podcast, but I think it's for the better. Uh, so uh, I outlined in uh, the last one um, how I did 1990, um, and... After finishing the show, I, I kind of thought back and uh, wasn't entirely happy with the whole thing. Uh, so I, I, I sat back and I uh, decided with 1997, I wanted to try it a little bit different. So um, I, I focused on a few different things. Uh, one is I kind of looked at each person uh, that was on my GW list of 2016. Um, potential people I'm going to vote for, everyone for 1990, um, and any contenders for 1997. And I kind of wrote down uh, how many matches they had that year based on cage match. So I got I got an idea of how they worked. Um, and there was, there was a few people, um, we're going to talk a lot about them later, who had like huge gaps in 1997, which makes it a little more awkward to rank. But it did give me a good idea of who was working and and such. Uh, so I did that, and then I kind of looked at people, and you know, there's some wrestlers I've seen like all of their 1997. You know, I was I was a teenager at the time, and I've gone back and watched their stuff, uh, and I know it very well. So I, I know how to rank them for 1997. Uh, but there's a lot of people uh, that. I haven't even I I've watched, but maybe not a lot from 1997, or I haven't watched the 1997 work in a long time. So for everyone on the list that I wasn't comfortable with, what I did is I watched like random matches, like two to eight. We'll say two to eight. Um, generally more closer to two, but uh, you know some of them we hit it up more, and I kind of saw what they looked like in 1997, and then. I used that more as a ranking. Well, 1990, it was just like, well, here is the people I know, and let me watch some other great matches to fill it out. But here, I was just watching more like, random stuff. Uh, and I feel this has made a lot better of a list. Uh, also, a lot more fascinating to me, um, there's a lot of people I ranked here that uh, when I started laying out who to look for in 1997, I didn't think about, and I probably never would have thought about. Um, You'll see with my number 25 pick, I would have never guessed they'd be anywhere on my top 25 list for any year that we did. Uh, but uh, uh, this was the fun procedure because, like, you'll go to watch one person and they have a match with someone. And you're like, wow, that match was way better than I expected. Let me watch that other person and see what they have. And then you, you go down a rabbit hole and now your top 25 list is filled with people that you didn't expect, which is awesome. And I, I love that. So, uh, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer, like I said, closer to six weeks than four, um, but I think the podcast and my list will be better for that. So let's start with my number 25, and this was a person that, if you told me before I started my 1997 list, I would have never thought they would be on it. Um, but this is uh, number 25, Scott Flash Norton. Um, I watched him, I was watching, I forget if it was a Kensuke Sasaki match or the Great 
Muda match. Uh, and I was like blown away how awesome Scott Norton was. Uh, so then I watched the rest of his G1 Climax, and then I watched uh, his his team with Vicious Delicious. So he's got a lot of New Japan and WCW stuff, and he's fucking just awesome in 1997. Uh, just an absolute monster out there. Just um, beefy and hitting people, and he's got a lot of charisma I didn't expect and his his pacing the matches are amazing so um yeah Scott Norton at number 25 did not predict uh obviously didn't rank him in 1990 um the match I would recommend the most from him uh would be the great Muda match from August 2nd it's uh the D1 Climax and damn that is a banger if you've never seen that so check that out number 24 uh, someone I ranked fourth in 1990 uh, would be Akira Hokuto. Um, obviously, still an absolutely amazing wrestler uh, in 1997, uh, but it was a bit of a weirder year. They spent a lot of time in WCW. Um, a lot of WCW like B shows where they're only getting like four minutes. Um, uh, they they did have a good match with Medusa on pay-per-view, so there is that. Uh, and then they were in Gaia, and uh, I couldn't... It's harder to find a lot of Gaia footage, uh, but she did have a great match with Karu from April 12th. Uh, and uh, that would be the match I'd recommend for Hokuto, but, you know, Hokuto's fucking awesome. Uh, even if they're having a down year where they're 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 kind of more all over the place. They're they're still fucking awesome, and uh, they'll probably make my list every year they're active, unless something goes horribly wrong. But who the fuck knows? Uh, but here here Akira Hokuto is still awesome in nineteen eighty seven. Um, number twenty three uh, would be Psychosis. Uh, they had a fun year too because they did a lot of um, they did a lot of WCW work, obviously as a cruiserweight. Um, they were all over Nitro and the B shows, uh, doing some trios on pay per views that were all awesome and the clashes. Uh, but they were also working Mexico too, uh, which really helped rounds out their case. Uh, the match I'd like to spotlight would be the October third match uh, versus El Hijo del Santo and Provo Azteca. That's a great ass match. Psychosis uh, still really at the top of their game. Uh, unbelievable bumper. Uh, unbelievable flyer, a real nutcase out there with his bumps and stuff, but uh, uh, absolutely amazing wrestler. So, um, yeah, Psychosis. I, I guess I didn't think of Psychosis, but yeah, Psychosis in probably the 95 through 97 range is absolutely amazing. I I, I, I bet they'll probably make another appearance during those times on those lists, but uh, we'll find out. Number 22. Uh, this is someone, uh, my friend was saying, you need them on your list. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I don't think so. Uh, and then as the closer and closer we got, uh, we got to the end here, uh, Terry Funk, uh, you know, gets on here at number 22. Um, they, they spent a lot of the time in ECW. Um, obviously they were the champion there. They, you know, they had their Bible barbed wire match with Sabu. They, they were in the main event of Barely Legal. So they were all over that. Uh, but they also spent like, you know, 
a couple weeks in the WWF, uh, and they did some uh, indie stuff, of course. And then the um, the match I'd really like to spotlight, which is an all-time classic, if you've ever seen it, was from September 11th, which was, um, I guess, the 50 years of Terry Funk, where he took on Bret Hart uh, in an ODQ match. I forget if it was for the title or not, but uh, it's an absolute classic match. Uh, Terry Funk, uh, it didn't rank him in 1990 because of some inactivity stuff. Uh, but in 1997, he uh, he gets on here uh, for an amazing year. Uh, number 21, um, Ultimo Dragon. Yeah. Um, someone that I know some people are mixed on, but, you know, the more I watch him, like, maybe not later on, but definitely during this period, he's so smooth. He's so fun to watch. And, dude, friggin' awesome in Mexico, awesome in Japan, and all over WCW. Um, pulled Jericho to one of his best matches in WCW. Uh, you know, was, yeah, I'll spot like that match from the Bash of the Beach uh, with Jericho. What a performance, because I don't think Jericho's that great, but uh, Dragon looks makes him look amazing, and he's all over so many different promotions all over the world and uh, putting out great performances uh, everywhere there. So Ultimate Dragon gets his first points towards him getting to my GWE list, which I don't think is possible, but you never know. Uh, you never know. Uh, number 20, uh, someone definitely I wasn't planning on watching, uh, but they, they started getting in there versus other opponents, and I, I kept watching them, and then just awesome stuff is Karu Ito uh, of All Japan Women uh, at number 20. Uh, man, uh, like, I'm watching her, obviously, in 1993 with my chronological watching of Joshi. And you mostly notice her for her her stomps. And they all look great. Um, she hasn't impressed me outside of those amazing stomps. Like, she's had some good stuff, but never really world beat her. Uh, but here she is in 1997, and she's, she's a fucking world beater here. <laughs> um... Man, I guess the best, uh, the, the one I'll really highlight, uh, and this was a fucking awesome match, uh, for March 23rd at Wrestling Queendom versus not only Toyota. Um, this is the, she made Toyota look the best I've ever seen Toyota look. Maybe not the best Toyota match, but the best I've ever seen Toyota look. Like, uh, just an absolutely amazing match. It was like a Sabu versus, like, badass match. Um, absolutely love it. So, Karo Ito, uh, but yeah, there's many, many awesome matches from her this year, so probably should check her out. Um, uh, definitely for 1997, well, someone to keep your eye out on there, because I didn't expect that. Number 19, uh, someone I thought would be a lot higher uh, when I started this process, uh, but and they were number 12 in 1990, is uh, Jushin Thunder Lager. Um, there was a lot of matches I saw from him which were slightly disappointing. And I'm not sure, you know, he, he's, he had cancer in 1996 and like a brain tumor. So I can't really hold that against him. Uh, he did have a lot of awesome matches, but um, he, he did feel, uh, I'm not sure, but a little bit slower, maybe adjusting to um, adjusting his style there. Uh, I would say maybe his best performance was from uh, February 9th. Uh, against Shinjiro 
uh, Otani. Um, but uh, yeah, Lager. Uh, I watched a bunch of random matches, and it was just kind of like, yeah, it's Lager, but it's it's Lager missing something. But uh, yeah, Lager missing something is still awesome, obviously, uh, to get number nineteen for the year, but. Still, uh, not enough to be pushing maybe as uh, as high as he would be on some other years. Uh, number eighteen, who was twenty third in nineteen ninety, so Negro Casas keeps building his case. Uh, yeah, watch any Negro Casas match; he's awesome. Uh, he does have the one really great standout match where uh, on the sixty fourth anniversary against Sergio Del Santo. Uh, when they, they mask for his hair, uh, that's an all-time classic. But uh, just so many great performances in every position he's put in throughout the year. Um, yeah, Negro Casas. You can just watch a random trios, and he's awesome. So uh, Negro Casas has another great year. Uh, what's up next is number 17, Takemishinoku, who... Um, yeah, he was at the, really. I, I think this might be the peak Taka. Uh, he he's in Mishinoku Pro, having a lot of awesome matches. He does some great stuff in New Japan, and then he comes to the WWF and uh, the little. Oh, sorry, he also has his ECW run uh, with Kaiantai, and he comes to the WWF and has some great stuff there too. Uh, in a position that he really shouldn't have had great stuff. So Taka Mishinoku just. Um, as a flyer, there's very few people that are more smooth than him. Uh, and uh, what's great about 1997 for him is he starts off being like showing that he is one of the greatest uh, heels and just dick heels out there. Uh, and then at the end of the year, when he's in the WWF, has to show that he is such a great baby face. Um, uh, man, I don't want to really like pick a match for him because they're all just kind of really awesome and fun. Maybe the Koji Kimoto match from February 9th, uh, New Japan, which was obviously a great show because we've highlighted it a couple times here. Uh, but Taka Mishinoku, um, unbelievable flyer. Uh, a, a great year. Uh, very varied and all over the place uh, for different companies. Uh, number 16, Shinjiro Otani. Um, if you told me at the start when I started in 1997, I, I probably would have uh, thought they'd be, you know, contending for a top five, top ten spot. Um, they they kind of had that lagger syndrome where um, they were just outshined. New Japan Juniors were in 1997 just fucking unbelievable. We'll hear about more later uh, on this list, but gosh damn, everything they all rule. Uh, in unbelievable stuff. Um, I'm going to highlight the uh, April 12th Al Samurai match. Uh, that's that's fucking awesome. Otani is so good in that. Uh, but I, I did watch some disappointing Otani performances. So uh, that, that kind of brings him down the list a little bit there, sadly. Uh, number 15, uh, this would be the solo entry from All Japan. Um, man, All Japan in 1997 was so such a disappointment to go back and watch for this. I swear, 90% of the matches I saw started with a finishing sequence. 
and it just irritated me so much. Um, but I did see a bunch of Kabashi performances where he was, he basically worked around him selling his leg. Um, so that really put him over the top. Uh, there's the January 20th, 1997 match with uh, Masawa, which um, I think everyone knows and loves. I haven't watched it in years, so I don't know if it really holds up for me. Um, because the other Misawa match I watched from October, I did not. Uh, but the other Kobashi performance I saw, uh, him and obviously Tawe were the other were the standouts. Um, but uh, Tawe, yeah, he'd probably be 26 on this list, sadly. Uh, but I, I love Tawe, um, obviously. But uh, yeah, Kobashi at number 15. I don't know if you can hear the massive windstorm I have going outside, but that's fun. Uh, so a few more people here before we uh, we move uh, we take a break and go to our guest uh, number fourteen. Uh, Al Samurai, Al Samurai, yeah. What the hell, Al Samurai in nineteen ninety seven is one of the most unreal wrestlers I've ever seen. Um, he's just. Like it's like he has a death wish where he just wants to take all the most vicious bumps in the history of wrestling, uh, and he gets bloodied and beaten up, uh, and just, just he's a rag doll out there for uh, for the uh, the Ligers, the Otanis, and Keiji Komotos, and all those people, um, just to to kick his ass, um, and he becomes this like super sympathetic uh, dude, which. <laughs> Uh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, the June fifth match from the Best of the Super Juniors versus Koji K. Mado, uh is an unbelievable, great match that you should really check out. Uh, number thirteen, and this is the first of the people that I want to mention about how these there's these weird gaps in 1997 for a lot of workers that probably they should have been higher, but. Uh, there's a problem. So Eddie Guerrero, he starts the year off, he's a babyface, and he's pretty good. Like, he has a lot of good stuff. He has the ladder match with six. Um, he, he's really good, obviously. Uh, then he has, like, a accident, and he's injured, and he's gone. And he comes back, and he turns heel, and he's just fucking unreal. He's an unreal heel for the rest of the year. Um, but that is, like, you know, three or four months. Uh, and then there's a gap, and then here there's the babyface portion where he wasn't as unreal. So it, it makes him a little trickier to place, uh, but I, I put him 13th. Um, yeah. If you haven't seen it, I don't know who's listening to this who hasn't seen the, the Halloween Havoc Ray Mysterio match, but if you haven't watched that, that's, that's an unreal performance. But um, if you really want to see how great Eddie is in 1997, just watch any performance of his after his heel turn. That, that's when he really picks it up. Number 12, Atsuko Mita. Uh, LCO in 1997 is unreal. They're the tag team of the year for everyone we've seen. Uh, they are just fucking insane as a tag team. Um, Mima has a few other singles matches that makes her stand out. Uh, so we'll talk about her later, but uh, Mita is right in those tag matches. She's in that tag team, Unreal. The August 9th uh, tag match with LCO versus Kong and Kyoko Inoue. 
uh, is one of the most wild tag matches I've ever seen. Like, I don't know what's happening in that match. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. But uh, any LCO performance from 1997 is, the, like, they're an all-time great tag team. And 1997, they were on uh, an amazing level for them. Uh, and the final person we're going to spotlight uh, before we uh, head to our interview uh, is number 11. And I, I mentioned uh, with Eddie about weird gaps. Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, like from January, he starts as a heel. He has the uh, the double turn in WrestleMania with Brett. Uh, with an all-time great match and turns babyface and then he's just like man what a fucking babyface right like uh, just unbelievable uh just having great matches with everyone in tag teams as singles and uh in multi-man tags against the canadians um against his partner sean everyone uh and then uh at SummerSlam he gets uh injured and he has like one more match the rest of the year, but like it's barely a match or actually a couple actually, uh, but they're barely matches. Uh, the rock match is actually a pretty great performance for someone who can't move and has a broken neck. Um, but man, if like he didn't get injured, you could make an argument for him. Number one. Um, so, but eight months of being great. This is obviously not as great as 12 months of being great. <laughs> so uh, Steve Austin drips here, uh, drops here. Uh, man, uh, I don't know. Take your choice of recommended matches uh, with uh, for Austin. You know, we'll go uh, In Your House Revenge of the Taker versus uh, Brett because that's a, a lesser-known Brett-Austin match, um, the third best of their series. But... Uh, another great performance there and it was kind of the first of him as a baby face from the beginning of the match so there is some significance there uh, not the first match but the first like pay-per-view big match uh it was actually a replacement match but uh, i know way too much about wwf in 1997 history so i, I won't go into the, the the folklore there but uh steve austin uh could have been like a top top contender but uh uh, the way 1997 rolls out, he's um, uh, just the last person outside the top 10. So um, that's my number 25 through number 11 list for 1997. Uh, we're going to go into that interview with Matt Feuerstein about uh, Ring of Honor and its impact on GWE. Uh, and then we'll return with the top 10. Matt Feuerstein, how are you doing? 
Hey, I'm doing good, and I appreciate that you called me the co-host because I, I, I will always insist that Trevor Dame is the host of that show, he, uh, and I am his faithful sidekick, and that's exactly how I like it. Um, but yeah, I'm doing good. I'm very excited to be here for this. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly honored that you asked me to discuss this subject because it is a subject that I feel like I can actually talk about, which there are not many. <laughs> <laughs> I try to find someone who's. Um relevant to the topics I want to talk to. Um, um, yeah, I won't derail anymore. I was going to go on to a thing about how that me and Stacey and who we, what roles we think we have within that podcast, but um, we won't go into that here. <laughs> but we are talking about, uh, well, obviously, this is the official uh, GWE podcast, so we will be relating to this to the greatest wrestler ever. Uh, project, but we're more specifically talking about Ring of Honor, which um, had some news about it being on a deathbed uh, recently, and uh, I thought it might be a topic worth uh, broaching at this time. Yeah, I um, I'm still, you know, not totally sure what's happening with that. Like, I I am not ready to completely write the obituary of Ring of Honor. It does seem like they want it to exist in some form. It, it's it's kind of hard to picture what that will look like in 2022 with no body signed or, you know, contracts. And But, like, I do believe they're going to produce shows under that name. I, I, I still have, I still feel like that's going to happen. I just am very curious as to what that actually means. Yeah, it feels like they're going to go and just be like a regular indie. <laughs> yeah, with television, right? So, like. Well, are they keeping the television? Because, like, they're not going to be on the air for three months. But, but I mean, that, see, this is these are the questions worth asking. Why would a television company keep a wrestling promotion going without television? So, my <laughs> assumption is. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, Sinclair is still the owner of ROH. So, I, I feel like there'd be no point in in them keeping the company without having a TV show, right? I don't know. That would make sense. (laughs) But what makes sense uh, in 2021 is another question that could be talked about. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much nothing. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, uh, like, uh, I like to try to keep these interviews kind of not from you know, your super long length podcast. So let's jump Fair right enough. into, uh, <laughs> jump right into this. Um, so ring of honor, uh, I have some questions here. Um, first of all, uh, about the start of it here, uh, I wanted to ask if when ECW and WCW closed, do you think, um, ring of honor was, uh, or a promotion exactly like ring of honor was kind of inevitable? You know, I've, I've thought about that a lot over the years, and I think the answer is yes and no. I think that, you know, in, if you look at the, the wrestling landscape in 2001, there were a lot of junior heavyweight wrestlers that were inspired to get into wrestling by the Monday Night Wars and also um, kind of influenced by the scenes in Mexico and Japan uh, and that was never going to find a home in the WWF, right? Like that was just, it was just not, not any, not in any real sense, right? Like obviously over the years, Vince McMahon would begrudgingly allow that sort of stuff to somehow appear on his television at different points. But 
you know, we've talked about this when you were on uh, through the years. WCW actually uh, cultivated a scene where they would bring in exciting young small wrestlers and let them wrestle. And WCW had audiences that would just be like, oh, cool. And they would appreciate them. And they would also bring in Japanese wrestlers and Mexican wrestlers. And people would be like, oh, cool. They're good. Let's cheer them. And, you know, they wouldn't make them top of the card stars, of course, um, except I guess briefly they sort of tried with the great Muda many years earlier. But um, but WCW and and, and ECW obviously also were amenable to just this concept. And WWF just was not. Like they, that's just not what they did. So there had to be some place for this dearth of wrestlers to go. You know, the guys that started ROH um, and you know were there over the first couple of years, like uh, like Loki and Danielson and Homicide and Christopher Daniels and AJ Styles and all those guys. You know, they they would have. I mean, AJ obviously even did. They go to WCW or ECW. Like they would have been. They would have appeared on those shows. And at some point, if those two promotions stuck around, um, WWF decided that Danielson and Spanky weren't even worth keeping on their developmental roster. So, like, uh, something had to give. The reason I say not exactly ROH would have been inevitable is because I do think, and I know, you know, Gabe Polsky gets a lot of shit. Um, you know, some justified reasons, some unjustified reasons, but I do think that he had a special kind of vision. Um, and the way that he booked the promotion in a serious, maybe sometimes overly serious manner, um, the way that he protected his titles and made the ROH world title into something really important, the way he learned from Paul Heyman and was a student of history, I don't think anybody could have done that. I don't think anybody could have gotten the notoriety and attention and promoted things the way that he did so i think that wrestling on the indies in the style of roh yes i think a promotion that actually was able to accomplish what roh was able to accomplish no i don't think that was inevitable i think that was you know i think you know i mean you could give a lot of credit to the wrestlers and to gabe and um not going to give any to uh, to Rob Feinstein necessarily, but he was he was the person whose money started the promotion. So I guess you give him that. I guess. <laughs> I guess you have to. And he, he had yeah. the infrastructure of being able to sell video games. Right, and the and the need and the need, like right. So that that was part of what allowed ROH. Right. If, if you don't know, um, if you're listen for the listeners, ROH basically started because RF Video. You know their major source of attention and revenue was the ECW and especially the ECW fan cam videos that RF had exclusive rights to. And when ECW went out of business, they, that left a hole in their business. And one of the things that Feinstein and Doug Gentry decided to do was, hey, we should just make our own indie and promote that and sell a lot of the tapes. And they brought in Gabe Sapolsky, who was the uh, kind of the booker and the visionary, and off they went. Um, so now, now with some hindsight, it's been fucking 20 years, um, <laughs> if you can believe that, yeah. um, what would be like the main kind of things that, uh, you think you should have changed at the, like, if you could go back in time, uh, about Ring of Honor, like its creation and what it did? Well, um, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that you would change would be stuff that you would say, you know, in 2021, 2022 eyes, you'd say, oh, this is so regressive and and just kind of 
coarse and gross. Like the very first segment of ROH ever <laughs> in front of a live audience was uh, one of the most homophobic uh, segments in the history of wrestling. And again, we said this on the show, think about the ground that covers because like – like homophobia and wrestling have gone hand in hand going back, I don't know, probably a hundred years, but, um, or more, but, um, the, the, it opened with the, the Christopher street connection, which was a, a gay gimmick. Uh, the two, two wrestlers who I believe were not actually, uh, LGBTQ, um, but, um, played two gay wrestlers. Like they, you know, I think in some promotions they were baby faces, but at the beginning in ROH, they were heels. They would make out in front of the audience to get, you know, groans of horror um they would have you know horrible chance directed at them the announcers especially uh who at the time at the beginning were steve carino and eric argiulo would just act like the most homophobic 11 year old boys in the world and the way they reacted to the christopher street connection and then you had the hit squad just completely decimating them that was the opening segment of roh which was supposed to be this pure wrestling company um so i mean it's just one of the biggest stains on the company forever because you can't really hide from your first segment you know what i mean uh, they did others that were in there. Like you know, they 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 went a few we a few uh, months of doing these homophobic angles with the Christopher Street connection. Um, that one stands out the most, though. Um, and the other big thing, um, ROH. I mean, really to this day, but especially in the aughts when I followed it closely, they never did right by women. Um, whether it was women wrestlers, especially, but also their women valets and managers. Um, as characters on commentary, um, you had uh, the commentary um, during women's matches, which would, would range from anywhere from uh, the announcers, and uh, which a lot of the time were um, in the early days were uh, Gabe Sapolsky, CM Punk, uh, Doug Gentry, um, Mark Nolte at different points. They would either go from you know leering at them like Jerry the King Lawler did and making gross comments or being like, Let's marvel at how they're actually not terrible. Like that, it would be stuff like that. And the, you know, even for and even for matches that weren't very good, like they held them to a very low bar. They gave them very little time on the shows. Um, and of course, uh, one of the famous things if you followed our podcast is for the first. Oh gosh, I don't remember even the number now, but it was from February of two thousand and two until October of two thousand and three. That literally every single ROH show during that run had man-on-woman violence every single one uh not even like didn't even skip one show during that run and then after that there were plenty that had it too just it wasn't uh the streak was broken at that point but what a um, Kyle Ripken Jr. streak that is it's crazy um and um you know Alice in Danger was uh probably the most prominently featured women in the woman in the early days of ROH she was with the Christopher Street connection at the beginning um, she eventually went on to join Christopher Daniels and be his uh, manager and second in the prophecy, and he'd, she'd be in the corner of Dan Moff and and even B.J. Whitmer at different points. And she uh, took a lot of debt punishment, whether just like straight up punches to the face, um, being driven through tables. Um, Becky Bayless went through a table at one point. Uh, Danger took the cop kill. I just – all sorts of men on women violence, and you know what it made it especially egregious. Not that it's ever good. Is it was that old ECW thing where even when it was done to um, a babyface by heels, it would get like the biggest babyface reaction on the show because that's unfortunately just how wrestling fans were trained to act, or just would have acted anyway um, back then. 
I mean, um, WWF did it too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have Mickey James, you have Lacey, Sarah Del Rey. Like, you have these people that, you know, I would consider for my greatest wrestler on the list, uh, right there. And you're just not, like, people don't realize that Lacey was a fucking amazing wrestler, uh, because they just never showed it in Ring of Honor. In fact, um, one of the earliest Lacey appearances, uh, Mark Nolte, who was on commentary, went on this tirade. She was in the corner of Special K. And Mark Nolte was like, oh, these women, you know, they come in, they ruin everything. You know, what does Lacey have to do with anything? The only thing Lacey knows about wrestling is that she can't do it. And it's like, like, nobody, like, stopped and said, like, you know, just so you know, like, yeah, like you said, Lacey's really good. But even just telling him, like, hey, you know, Lacey is a wrestler, right? Because they didn't have her wrestle on uh, any shows um, for the first at least six months and then barely at all after that, too, for a couple of years there. So, um, you know, she was just a manager. I will say this about Lacey, at least to the point that we're up to now, which is um, we just finished September 2005. There has not been any violence done to her by any men, which is for ROH. That's like, wow, they're treating her with a lot of respect here. Um, so there is that. Um, but I, no, I listened totally to right. some recent uh, podcasts with you, and uh, it sounds like she's kind of doing something she was kind of doing in Shimmer, where she would just do stuff that, like, today would make her a baby face, but, you know, she's supposed to be ill. Like, in, in Shimmer, she'd come out and she, like, people would try to touch her, and she's like, ew, get away from me, disgusting Republican. And, <laughs> like, obviously, yeah, don't fucking touch someone, and yeah, Republicans are gross. Um, so she's clearly the baby face there. Uh, and in, uh, Ring of Honor, you know, she's she's getting leered at and getting mad at it. That's, that's yeah, not a I mean, move. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, she would she would get mad when people actually were pervs to her. And like it was funny because I one thing I did not remember was in least in these, you know, these current promos at the era that we're watching, whenever she would just be interviewed, like before the gross stuff started, she would always act like normal and nice. Like she'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to, you know, observe some wrestlers. I think, you know, I'm going to try to get some talent under my wing, you know, and thanks, you know, thanks for interviewing me. And then they just start like looking her up and down and like the camera would go down her leg. She'd be like, wait, what are you doing? I'm up here. And she'd get really mad. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is something that you should get mad about. So yeah, you're right. She was, not actually doing anything heelish during these during this period. Yeah, yeah. If you want to listen to the Shimmer podcast, uh, me and Cece uh, have quite the love affair with Lacey over there. Um, yeah, so, I mean, she's great. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, but yeah, going back to uh, more Ring of Honor, uh, and so did Ring of Honor change anything about your wrestling fandom or how you view wrestling? Oh yeah. Um, so I um, I got into Ring of Honor big time in 2005. I I followed it a little bit before that. Um, but what really made me get really big into it was being able to go to the live shows. So I was up. I was in upstate New York for college um, from most of 2000, second half of 2001, until um, middle of 2005, basically. So I didn't really have the access to the live events um, the way I did when I moved back down to New York City uh, in 2005. And then I started going to the shows all the time, and I, yeah, I fell in love with it like really quickly. It was it was amazing. I mean, I'm one of the weirdos that really – actually, one of my favorite periods of WWE was like 
2002 to the through the first half of 2005 like uh, you know most people look at that era and they're like you know oh, that's kind of a dead era but that was an era where there was a lot of Eddie Guerrero where there was a lot of Chris Benoit you know say what you will I love really really like Chris Benoit back then like what are you what are you gonna do um, there was a lot of Rey Mysterio and Chavo Guerrero and um, you know Edge was coming into his own and you know Brock Angle, Lesnar, even, I mean, listen, there were even periods where I enjoyed what Triple H was doing. Um, I think, you know, Michael's comeback for for someone like me was exciting. And there were a lot of great matches during that period when you had the the SmackDown 6 era, you know, Benoit winning the title, Eddie Guerrero winning the title, um, you know, just a lot of really good stuff, you know, and there was a lot of terrible booking during that era too. And there were definitely like race baiting angles during that era and, you know, some creepy stuff involving women. It was just sort of something, unfortunately, that you um, took as something you took for granted in wrestling back then, like that that's just how it was. But, you know, I I was always a fan of like just the serious wrestling. Um, You know, it's kind of, I don't know, I guess it's kind of like a, a wrestling, like smart mark stereotype. You know, I loved Chris Benoit and and Guerrero and stuff on the, in the Nitro days. You know, I, I would always get excited for the Tajiri and Super Crazy matches in ECW. And ROH was like a promotion that really highlighted that style. And as WWE just got more and more ridiculous, and I'd say middle of 2005 is when they started to lose me, uh, WWE. Um, you know, I'd come back through different periods when things were good, but I never really was like consistently into it ever again after that. And ROH really filled a void for me because they would put on these shows where the wrestling was the highlight, and you know you could ex- you can expect a long main event that's based on athleticism, and they protected their titles, and they and the fans for the most part appreciated good wrestling, and I felt like if I went, it would be catered to somebody exactly like me, and I I don't know if there was a wrestling promotion ever before that that ever existed in the United States. Um, you know, there were, there were like ECW was the hardcore wrestling fans promotion, but that went two ways because it was like hardcore fans who loved and knew everything about wrestling and, you know, appreciated everything, but also like hardcore wrestling where it was like violent and bloody and sometimes messy. And that could be cool, but also they really leaned heavy into trying to be edgy. It was and, also more about stories than it was about the actual matches. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. So they, they leaned really heavy to trying to be edgy and like, you know, the, even as as bad as the treatment of women was in ROH, it was, you know, even sleazier in ECW, I would say, at least a lot of the time. Um, and the um, and yeah, and like it was just it was very story based sometimes, you know, especially in like 05, the, I mean, 95, the stories were, were pretty good, but they could also get pretty weird and the booking could kind of be all over the place. And I just ECW was cool for what it was, but. It wasn't like perfectly designed for me the way uh, the booking, at least of the men in ROH, was in the uh, in the aughts. So I, yeah, I don't. And also, it was a promotion that really mainly featured as their main eventors like junior heavyweights. And I mean, there again, there really wasn't a major promotion that did that. I mean, TNA when it came along. It featured those guys. Um, you know, you would sometimes have main events with AJ Styles and Daniels and Loki and stuff like that. But really, the main eventers were still like the WWF casts off cast offs, right? Like, it still had um, not not that it was always bad, but you still like Jeff Jarrett and Raven and and Ron Killings and Shamrock. I think was their first champion. Like it was, 
it was still like they still didn't lean into it the way ROH did. So um, when they did it on television, Rhino was their champion. Yeah, exactly. And you know, then then they went to like Monty Brown and like guys like that. Again, like not saying it was that was all bad or anything. I mean, a lot of it was, but it wasn't all bad. But it wasn't doing what ROH was doing. And I don't think any promotion before really featured the style that ROH was featuring as like its main thing. And allowing a guy like Samoa Joe or Brian Danielson or even CM Punk to actually be like, hey, you are the main eventer of our promotion. You get to do all the things main eventers do and carry yourself like a main eventer. I don't know if there would really be any promotion before – before ROH, like at least on, on that scale, that would allow someone like Brian Danielson to inhabit that role. And I don't know that we get Brian Danielson what he's doing now in the role he's in now if it wasn't for ROH allowing him to show that he could do it. Yeah, and uh, with that, like obviously Ring of Honor was doing that. Um, I, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but... Um, like how much of an influence to the way wrestling is now is, is Ring of Honor? I mean, it's huge. I mean, you can't you can't say it's just Ring of Honor because Ring of Honor obviously was influenced by a lot of other things too. But in you know, people often give credit to ECW for influencing the Monday Night War era, certainly influencing the direction that the WWF went in with the whole Attitude era and stuff like that. And, you know, it deserves credit for that, you know, kind of bringing in the edgy, you know, pseudo-reality stuff. I think that ROH, especially since it lasted much longer, you know, its its peak era was not as big as ECW's, but it was longer. Um, it's It brought in a lot of talent and brought them to uh, national attention, uh, you know, again, on a smaller scale, but certainly in the newsletters, um, you know, certain kinds of fans. Um, I have to say it was, it's huge. I mean, like, I think to really like the first ROH star that became a star in WWE, which I mean, unless I'm, unless I'm wrong, the first one that really became an actual star there was CM Punk, right? Like yeah. as far as, going from, from ROH to uh, WWE. Um, CM Punk is probably, of all the guys that ROH pushed, the guy that you would think like anybody would be able to see the, his star potential because he was just such a great promo and a good character. But then you look back and you're like, look at what TNA did with CM Punk. <laughs> Basically nothing, right? And look at the what WWE tried to do with CM Punk at the beginning. They were constantly trying to cut him off at the knees. Um, in fact, he would not have even been able to be CM Punk there if it wasn't for the fact that Paul Heyman, just by a stroke of luck, was running OVW um, when, when he got there. And then happened they happened to give Paul Heyman his own you know, TV show or quote-unquote brand in ECW when Punk was called up. I mean, who knows what they would have done with Punk if it wasn't for Heyman. And so... Just the fact that Punk was able to be a little bit protected even as he was buried and eventually get himself over, um, I think that made a huge difference. And then, of course, the other one was uh, Brian Danielson or, or Daniel Bryan. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people thought that Brian Danielson had no chance of being a star in WWE. Um, at In the very early days of Danielson being an indie darling, like – you know, oh two through let's say oh five, oh early oh five. I think I probably would have agreed with them. 
you know, I would have said, this guy is obviously an amazing technical wrestler. He has great matches. He has sort of a goofy charisma, but he's not really a promo. And he, his look is just like he's not, you know, he's he's in good shape, but he's not big. You know, his body is not like Chris Benoit's body. You know, his he's he's pale. Uh, he kind of seemed to, at points, intentionally not look like a wrestling star. The way he would buzz his head, and I felt like at different points over his early run, he would like get skinnier as opposed to getting bigger. And you look and be like, okay, well, obviously this guy does great for his niche. You know, I hope he gets a run in Japan because that's the only place he's ever going to be able to work in you know big matches and big arenas. Um, by the time though he went to WWE in 2009. I thought that he would be able to accomplish something there because I thought he has just developed so much in terms of his promos, in terms of his character, in terms of the way he works a crowd. I just I felt so strongly that he was the sort of guy that like his talent was undeniable. Even I was shocked that he was able to at one point become the most popular babyface they had in years. Like that was startling to me. I thought what he would, I thought he'd sort of, if they let him be able to do something closer to what he's doing now in AEW, which is just be like a, a really good, like heel who would have the world championship sometimes. Like I thought he would be able to reach that level, especially in an era where they had two different titles. You know, he, they'd give him one of them, but I never thought he'd be able to be a top baby face. And then he was, and like, I feel like that changed a lot. You know, just like those two guys in particular were obviously, you know, one and one A of success stories from ROH. But I mean, what what you also got was just the style um, coming, you know, coming to uh, WWE. Obviously, the style that ROH did is not the only promotion that did that. Like you saw in the uh, in the two thousands, you had IWA Mid South who was bring, booking a lot of the same guys and having great matches there. Then you had PWG, which kind of took that style to another level. Uh, especially in the in the 2010s and um you know you had you know czw was doing it you know you had promotions all over the country that were sort of doing that style it became the popular indie style and so you you were able to see guys like um you know john moxley and seth rollins and cesaro and all these guys i mean moxley was never in roh at least not in a major way but the other guys all were and they were sort of able to do what they were doing in roh in wwe and then, of course, you had NXT, which you know I don't really know that that style that NXT was pushing for the for those few years they were pushing it. I don't know that that would ever have gotten to these big arenas if it wasn't for um, if it wasn't for ROH and then the uh, the promotions that sort of carried on its legacy uh, elsewhere like PWG. And now you have AEW, which you know I mean clearly Tony Khan was an ROH fan, um, you know, like during the era that. I'm covering right now on my on on the podcast like he and so you guys you see so much ROH influence there between the ring style um the booking of champions things like that uh it's yeah it's it, it, so much would be was affected by uh, by ROH and I and I do think I think that people are realizing how influential it was um I, I don't I'm not I'm not going to say it's not really getting its due but I do think that it was in many ways just as influential as ECW was in its day uh, and I think one of the big influences as well of all those things you listed is um, they they kind of changed uh, the way promotions worked. As in, 
promotions uh, used to be um, you would build towards a big match and then you would have your big match. Um, and, you know, how you got there doesn't always involve the best wrestling, um, but you were hyping up to something. And I think Ring of Honor kind of really popularized every show and pretty much every match can be this great, amazing match. Um, I, I think that's one of the big things they, they kind of really did. And they, they did it to sell tapes. Like, it, it's understandable. Um, first, do you agree with that? And, and if so, do you think that was kind of like in the long run now that we're here 20 years later? Uh, do you think that's been great or bad for a wrestling? I mean, I don't want to say that it's been bad for wrestling. I see why maybe someone would make that argument. Um, but yeah, like you said, like, it's like their business model was literally every show that they did was in its own way a pay per view event. In that they, you know, there, there was no, free, it was not like TV building to a show. You had to sell every single show that you put on in that, those early days. And, you know, as much as we all love good promos and good stories, people aren't buying $20 DVDs for a promo segment, right? Like that's just, you know, you're buying it because you want to see a, a great match, one that you want to watch over and over again, right? That's why you own anything, right? So, um, so they had to really focus on the wrestling and they had all these great wrestlers to do it. And um, yeah, I mean, I think despite that though, like, and, and, and actually the way you mentioned how they changed how promotions work, I think you're right. Like I remember um, when I was a kid, like when I was like middle school and I would use um, TNM, you know, the, uh, the yeah, wrestling yeah. simulator and like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't book my promotion. Like, Oh, let's, uh, let's these TV show squash matches building to one big show. I would do a bunch of big matches on every show and big angles on every show and, and, you know, and, and write them up and stuff. I wish I still had that stuff saved. I'm sure it's so yeah, stupid, cool. but yeah, but like, that's what ROH was. It was like booking every show, like a big show. I mean, obviously, eventually, when they would do more and more shows, there would be B shows and stuff like that. But still, every show had had noteworthy stuff on it. Um, and um, yeah, but at the same time, they did have storylines. You know, I, they were the, the the wrestling scene was stable enough back then that um, you know they knew that they weren't going to just suddenly have all their guys be snatched up by WWE um, or TNA even. Um, you know, they, they knew that enough of the guys would still be on the indies that they could still book storylines over time. And what happened was, unfortunately, for these modern indies, you really couldn't count on that. You know, so you really couldn't book storylines in the same way because guys could be signed and like lots of guys could be signed. And WWE was very specifically trying to raid the indies for a lot of the 2010s. So you have promotions like the, what PWG has become, which is basically like – it's just matches. It's just dream matches. Like, yeah, there'll be like kind of a semi storyline occasionally, but maybe just like one, you know, and like a lot of indies became like that where like you're watching them for big matches, but you know, like there's really not much more beyond that, you know? And like something like GCW now can do a good job of like doing videos and stuff to build to like a big match or two, but you're not seeing like storylines that last over the course of like months and months, like the punk and, Joe rivalry or the Punk and Raven feud or our ROH versus CZW or Generation Next against the Embassy or thing, you know, just like normal wrestling storylines that go for months. Um, you really don't see that on the indies at all anymore. Um, and just because 
I think there's an instability to doing that. Um, so, um, so to the degree that ROH had a negative influence, I guess, you know, you could say like maybe just too much of like dry wrestling matches are the everything, but I do think that's a function of necessity as much as it is, you know, intentionally doing that as a style. I hear you. Um, so, so you mentioned a few names now. Um, who do you think uh, really made their name in Ring of Honor that would be like someone you'd consider for your 100 GWB list? Um, yeah, like, I mean, obviously, everyone's going to say Brian because, like, yeah, I think he's probably the front runner for uh, 2026. Um, but uh, you want to throw out some other names there? Yeah, and just to mention one thing about Brian, because I guess obviously he's kind of too obvious, but um, I will say this about him. If his career had ended in 2009 instead of him going to WWE, I still think he would have had a good case for being high on that list um, because he um, – I mean just so many great matches, like just like – and, and be developing his storylines and like he – he, you know what – I mean his character, what he did during that era was what got him to have an Observer Award named after him, right? The most – the best technical wrestler award is the Brian Danielson Award. That was due – that was based on what he did in ROH, not what he did after. So – that's what I'll say about Danielson. Um, the the first name that comes to mind for me, though, as far as like this is these are ROH guys who have a case to be made are uh, Jay and Mark Briscoe, because um, they were with ROH really. For, I mean, literally, Jay Briscoe had a show on the I had a match on the very first show. Um, Mark Briscoe had one or two two matches that year because he was not able to work in Pennsylvania because he was only seventeen, but he was able to work in Massachusetts. And the very first match they had against each other was in, uh, I believe, August 2002 uh, outside of Boston. And that match is freaking amazing. Like, like they'd, they had matches, you know, uh, outside of ROH in other promotions um, in 2001, and they got a lot of buzz. But the ROH match had, like, psychology and selling, and it was just like, these are kids. These are 17- and 18-year-olds. And they really just got better from there in terms of, like, they were great wrestlers very early on, but they really were super awkward and you know, kind of not super charismatic or good on the mic at all. And they've become like really charismatic, entertaining characters over the years and still great wrestlers. And almost every single major thing they did was an ROH, whether it was um, from the early days, their matches with um, AJ Styles and Red, then their feud with um, the uh, uh, Aries and Roderick Strong, uh, their feud with Kevin Steen and El Generico. Uh, they had match, amazing matches against Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin. Then, you know, going into the, uh, the 2010s, they're matched with the Young Bucks and Red Dragon and, and you know, people like that. They, they've just been great this whole time. And, yeah, I know, like, you know, if you want to judge people as human beings, you know, Jay Briscoe, you know, hopefully he has changed since then. But he's said some pretty horrible things uh, on Twitter in different points. Um, but just if you're talking about guys who were fantastic wrestlers and were doing it consistently for 20 years in ROH, uh, those would be the first guys that come to my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, aren't they still there? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. As much as you can be there at this point, right? Like, in that, um, the contracts are gone. But um, yeah, they're still there. They're still there, and they're still good. Um, another guy that comes to my mind as far as greatest wrestler ever, um, who really, if you like, if you ask people like name his best stuff, 
most of it would still be an ROH, and that's Homicide. Um, you know, Homicide had a much shorter run there. Like he's come back at different points, but you know, his real peak was the the two thousands. And, uh, you know, really 2007, he left ROH, and that was pretty much it for him as, like, being a top-tier ROH guy. Like I said, he'd been back different points, including this most recent run. But he was really, like, just such a superstar there and made him a superstar in the indies in general back then and obviously also made his name in other promotions, uh, Jersey All-Pro in particular. But, you know, he went from bloody brawls to – to great wrestling matches, to like big, big spot fests and all, everything in between. And he had such an aura about him as a character. Like he was just like kind of like had this old school, almost like folk hero vibe to him that a lot of guys in ROH didn't have. He sort of brought the old territory feel with him, you know, even if his wrestling style wasn't exactly that. Um, so he's a guy that I feel like is worthy of at least a look. Um, as far as things go, um, I mean, I guess other obvious people, Samoa Joe. <laughs> I mean, you know, Samoa Joe. Um, yeah, Samoa Joe, CM Punk. I mean, Punk. I would say. So the thing about Low Key, um, I would say uh, he had an amazing first year in ROH, and then everything after that was so sporadic. Um, you know, he'd be back, and then he'd fall out with them, and then he'd be back again, and. I think he left for good. I'm thinking like early 2006. I don't even know if he ever came back at all after that. If he must have, right? But like, I can't think of it. I didn't follow ROH super closely in the 2010s, so I can't say for sure. I, I watched, but I don't remember seeing Loki's name involved with ROH. But yeah, I mean, he's the guy who got ROH going. Like, he he had these matches on the first few shows that were just like one epic after another then in his later years he came back into this heel character and changed everything up and had some great matches there including a match against kenta which people still talk about today the kenta's first roh match which i'm very looking forward to reviewing on through the years and in a few months um you know he's a guy who kind of just got in his own way um um with joe it's like you know joe's wwe run like it wasn't. It's, it hasn't been useless or anything like that. He did some good stuff there, but really, when people talk about Samoa Joe, it's ROH and it's TNA. And really, I would say if you if you want to you know compare, I would say despite having he had some of his best matches in TNA, but I think overall his the, his best body of work really leans heavily toward the ROH end of things. Oh. Um, the matches with Punk, yeah, the, the matches with Punk. Obviously, uh, his match with Low Key. Uh, he had a great match with Daniels. He had a great matches with AJ. And uh, really, uh, as of this recording, Trevor and I are about two days away from recording our episode about his match against Kenta Kobashi, which, you know, I think a lot of people still look at that match to this day as one of the best matches ever. I know the match has its detractors, but I think that match's legacy holds up extremely well. Um, and, you know, obviously the series with Punk uh, does as well. Um, so I think, I think you gotta, you gotta list Joe in there. And I think he has a very strong case to being on that list. Um, honestly, um, Roderick strong, uh, you know, like, I, I don't think he'd be like super NXT hot. Superstar. Yeah. One of you, one of the few of this type of guy that's still left in NXT. Right. But, um, you know, I don't think anybody would say that Roderick strong is like high on the list of greatest wrestler ever, but I think they're probably the plenty. case for like. You know, your your 
bottom 20. Like, yeah, yeah, de- definitely. And he, I mean, he had a long run in ROH. He was there from, I think he had his first match there in 03. And when did he leave? 2015, 2016? Something oh, like yeah. that. He was there for a long time and had lots of great matches, lots of lots of great matches. Um, even somebody who's really, you know, people have soured on, like Austin Aries. Um, he was freaking great in ROH during the in the two thousands. Like he he really came on came on the scene. Like you know, unless you were following you know all the indies really closely, he was almost unknown when he when he really started in ROH you know like I think he you know he was start, he was starting to get buzz in the in the few months before Gabe brought him in but Gabe shot him to the moon um, pretty quickly he was he won the world title less than a year after he first showed up ended Samoa Joe's title reign and had so many great matches um, he had a different style a lot of a lot of um, pop and force and explosiveness and and he also got you know got himself over as a character too uh, in time. You see a lot of these guys really grow in ROH from um, from just kind of like these great mechanical wrestlers to really developing star quality. And the fact that they were able to become main eventers in ROH, I think, allowed them to do that. Um, you know, uh, Cesaro Claudio Castagnoli is another one who um, you know really was able to become a star in ROH. You know, he was definitely. I feel like. He had so many tools going for him that he was inevitable that he'd end up in WWE. But you know, I, I think, think of him as a Shikara guy from myself for some reason. Yeah, but he was in he was in ROH for years. Yeah, probably lo- probably longer than Shikara yeah. or like yeah. the same amount of time. And you know, he had great runs there as a single and with Chris Hero, and obviously that tag team with Chris Hero, you know, was had made a lot of name for itself before he was ever even in ROH, but they had a chance to do a lot of really great stuff there and develop into something more, um, more universally uh, acceptable, like in the terms of like something that you could present to a mass audience and get it, be a star, like the Kings of wrestling. Um, this, the version that existed in CZW and IWA in the early days of ROH when they were there was a little bit more comedic and, silly and like i love that like i'm not saying it was worse but what they ended up becoming in their second run there with like their matches with the briscoes and and the american wolves and like just becoming more serious dominant hard-hitting wrestlers i think prepared him a lot more for what he would have to be and the funny thing about uh cesaro is like you look at him you know so many years after he joined wwe and like you say oh they they really did not get out of him what they could have either like he should have been a top, top, top superstar um, for years. Like, like one of the top stars in the company. He has, he has everything, everything that you could want in a wrestler, and they never did that with him, right? So, like, I give a lot of stock, put a lot of stock to his ROH run, um, as far as you know, letting everybody see what he could really do. Um, you know, like there are other guys that went through that I think could be on the list, Kevin Steen, but I don't think that you can necessarily say that, like his ROH work was so overwhelmingly the reason why, you know what I mean? Like he was good in ROH, great in ROH, but he, he had, so he did so much, so many other places. Um, same thing with, uh, Sami Zayn, El Generico, um, if you want to list them. And then if you want to get into like the, the second half of ROH's run, you know, you talk about guys like Adam Cole, you know, I don't know, where you know if he would be on anybody's list at this point i think there might come a day um where he is um uh his, some rebuilding remember, to do. 
think. Yeah, I would I would say. Although, you know, I'll say this, because obviously a lot of people don't like, you know, some like the melodramatic stuff that he did in NXT. But I will say this. In ROH, a lot of the way people talked about him was he was a great personality, a good wrestler, but not a top-tier great match wrestler. Um, and I don't think people think that about him now. Like whatever you want to say about his NXT run, I do think it made people think of him as a better in-ring wrestler than they used to. Um, you know, however you want to think about that. Um, but like in America, um, where did most people who would be listening to this see a lot of young bucks matches early was an ROH. Like, you know, I don't think people think of them necessarily as ROH guys. You know, they did so much in PWG. They were in New Japan for a long time. But they, they had were the a top great of- run in TNA. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, no, that was that wasn't them. That was Generation Me. Um, <laughs> but um, but they had a they really did have a great run in ROH. Like they were tag team champions a lot of that time. And you know, I didn't watch ROH consistently in the 2010s, but like I would go to shows over the years there. I would go to shows that. Uh, the Hammerstein and the Manhattan Center, and you know, I went to um, some shows at. Oh, there was a show in I believe Terminal Five, which was a. It's like a concert venue in in New York City. I saw a show at a baseball field, and like the Young Bucks were always a major part of those shows, and often had the best match, and often got the most buzz. So like you, I would not discount what the Young Bucks did in ROH at all. I think that they like that that was a big part of their legacy was their ROH run. I think and, you can trace um, AEW to um, the uh, uh, I guess the Bullet Club basically fucking over Ring of Honor um, to kind of, kind of uh, prove their point to run their own show to kind of launch AEW. Like I, I think you can you can kind of Thank Ring of, uh, Ring of Honor, kind of just bowing uh, down to Bucks and Omega and stuff like them, and letting them do their own things and use them so terribly. Yeah, uh, not so not so much starting not, AEW. Not not so much Omega because he wasn't really in ROH much during that era, but the Bucks and Cody definitely. Um, you know, like they they were they were like the main draw in ROH in like 2016 20, or 2017, 2018. And then, uh, yeah, and, and then on ROH announced that Madison Square Garden show, like in the middle of 2018. And it was sort of like, to the extent that people were excited to go, like, you know, I remember talking with friends at the time and it was like, oh, I think a lot of people like are going to go and they're going to expect like a big match involving Kenny Omega, who was, you know, like IWDGP champ or like had just lost it maybe. I don't remember which. And the Young Bucks and Cody. And it's like, but they're doing all out and like who the hell even knows what's going to happen with them by the time we even get to madison square garden and uh indeed they were all gone by then from roh and omega was gone from new japan so they weren't on that show at all and i think you know that really changed the outlook of roh you look back at that ring of honor roster in like 2017 ish and it's like holy shit like they have an amazing roster you know and yeah omega you know showed up a little bit they they had the they had the relationship with new japan and we could get okada and tanahashi and nakamura uh, you know and naito to be on those shows and it's like and then you look after aw started and it's like wow this is you know this is changed this is like they really need to rebuild here so um you know those are those ROH years in the in the 2010s. You know they don't have the same legacy as the uh, as the stuff that Trevor and I are reviewing. But 
they sure did have a hell of a roster. I think you stop paying attention uh, fully. Yeah. So I would say the thing that made me start to lose my interest um, was not even necessarily anything ROH did. It was the, uh, the whole Chris Benoit murders. Um, Yeah. That that dampened a lot of wrestling interests for a lot of people. Yeah. Like I was so excited about everything before that. Like, and I had just a few weeks before those murders saw a great, great, great match in Philadelphia between Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson, where one of the big spots at the end was them repeatedly ramming their heads into each other and Danielson busting himself open. And like, and it was just like, oh, this is so fucking exciting. And then you have Benoit, and then you suddenly start having all the talk about CTE and concussions. And it's just, I, I just remember feeling like, what am I? You know, what am I giving my money to? You know, like, what am I encouraging here? And, like, I didn't go all the way, you know, to the logical endpoint, which is just like, okay, I can't support this anymore. You know, but there were times when I thought about it, but, like, I still went to ROH shows and I still enjoyed them. Um, But my spark had kind of faded a little bit um, for it. And I, I continued to watch, like, I'd say through 2008. I, I, what, what I had stopped doing though was, traveling to shows like i would go to all the so in in 2005 through 2007 i would go to shows obviously in new york city but also i'd go to philadelphia i'd go to i went to connecticut at one point i'd drive out to long island i'd go to all the shows in in jersey um once you hit 08 i pretty much was like all right i'm just going to go to shows in new york city and um by 09 even that was sporadic like i i know i went to um I went to Danielson and McGinnis's final farewell show. I went to uh, some. Sh- I went to probably a show a year in like 2010, 2011. You know, I missed some shows here and there, but I think in 2014, same thing. I'd go like once or twice a year. Um, and the last ROH show I went to was the show at Madison Square Garden in 2019. Um, you know, and, and you know, depending on what ROH turns into, maybe I'll go again. You know, who knows? But um, the other thing I think that. Um, soured me a little bit um not soured me in that like i think it was bad but just made it harder for it to for me to follow was they would they started becoming more tv oriented when they went to hdnet i didn't have hdnet so i didn't really seek it out as hdnet right 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 and so like i didn't really watch the shows when it was on tv i i then they went to sinclair and that you know left a sour taste in my mouth especially when i started learning more about who sinclair was um, also I think, you know, for, you know, for what you want to say about him, my favorite era of ROH was booked by Gabe Sapolsky and he left, you know, he was fired in 2008 and things changed a little bit and it wasn't all bad. You know, they, they put on some good stuff, but I don't think ROH ever had the identity that it had when he was the booker. You know what I mean? Like he was the guy who, um, who gave it the direction and the direction was something that mostly appealed to me and, they always sort of clung to that legacy, you know, to this day, but it was never exactly the same. So I don't want to say that ROH wasn't good after that. You know, I it had periods where it was very good, but it um, it never spoke to me in the same way. And, you know, I would say I didn't really redevelop a spark for like watching wrestling with super regularity, like current wrestling until really extremely recently, because I really do love despite a lot of flaws. I really do love what AEW has been doing. Um, 
definitely it has a lot of flaws. But it's gotten me more excited about wrestling and like watching current wrestling than I've been in oh gosh, and probably since two thousand seven. Yeah, that's me in stardom because uh, yeah. that promotions might be booked for me. Like <laughs> you basically like have, um, you know, you have like a one or like a like a moment promo from each person before every match, just being like, "Well, this is my." challenge and I'm going to really try hard today and then you have your little matches on the house shows building up to a big show uh, where there's great matches and um, yeah like that's really hit it for me uh, and it, yeah. it's it's really nice I, I see so many people that uh, AEW's done that for them um, which is great because um, I, I do think there, there's been um, well it was like a it was like a two-prong attack like WCW, ECW died and then Benoit killed people, and uh, like that killed off so much of people's fandoms that uh, well, it's yeah. good well, to see some rebound. Uh, there. Well, you know, you know what did it like with the Benoit thing for me? Like the reason like that had such an effect for I mean, the besides the obvious is that like my fandom was so based around like that kind of thing of like yeah, the best wrestlers are like the hard hitting guys that will give their bodies and do anything. And it's like, you sort of thought of them, like you compared like the Chris Benoit's of the world to like the Kevin Nash's of the world back in like the WCW days. And you'd be like, Oh, that Kevin Nash, you know, he's a, you know, Nash he's a won that argument now. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like, he's a smarmy guy that's lazy and wants to, um, you know, just wants to hold people down. And like that Chris Benoit, he's like a real, you know, hard worker. He's a good guy. And it's like, you almost felt morally superior if you were a weirdo like me and then you realize like, Oh my God, no, like I had it completely backwards. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like, no, like, th- like this, this is like a sickness. Like, ben was like the person defending Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, it's a, but, but even, even beyond the politics of it, like, it's just like, it's a, it's like this, it's like this male, like testosterone laden disease, like of the like, toxic just like masculinity is yeah. really the, um, if yeah. you want to put a third bullet in that gun, that, that one really killed shit. Like so much off for me. Uh, I just yeah. Well, because I guess maybe so be- much macho stuff. It's just like I, I don't give a shit if you think you're like some top macho dude like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, and not, it's not shocking that professional wrestling would be laden with that, right? But I guess as you get older and you become more like attuned to it and stuff, you realize how toxic it is, and like. You, you know, you look, but, but like the fact that I supported that, like that, you know, like Benoit and that kind of stuff. And, you know, to an extent, ROH too. And it's just like, uh, I am really part of the problem here. You know, like I was I, paying for the WWE network while they were, uh, it took me a while to drop it, even after they were, you know, getting blood money from the Saudi Arabia. Oh, dude, dude, I, I still do. Like, it's yeah. like, I, like, I, I, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not holding myself as any sort of moral oh. beacon right here, but There's like no ethical shopping in uh, capitalism. capitalism yeah like yeah no yeah no no ethical consumption but you know you try your best to at least live in sums with some sort of standards but yeah like when you have an addiction to something and like and a love of something like like i think when you're a big enough fan of something it is something akin to an addiction right um so it's like you're like either i live by my values or I remove something from my life that I enjoy very much, and it's like unfortunately sometimes the uh, the easy pleasure wins out. Like it, it unfortunately it does. Um, and you know I think it's I, I thought about this especially since 2007. How much just supporting wrestling is just being like, hey, I'm going to really encourage people to destroy themselves uh, well, for again, my like, entertainment. Watch the NFL. Watch the NHL. Yeah. 
you're, you're yeah. also like, yeah. supporting that. Like the, the NHL has proved uh, their actions are reprehensible the last month or so. Um, yeah. Well, and beyond that too, but really come forward and just fucking like, why can't, ugh, why can't you just be good? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, the problem it's capitalism. You can't be like, it's just like, I think that that's sort of what I've come down to. I think as an, on an individual level, you can be like, I, I don't think that any of us have to support something that's so terrible, but I think these companies to the extent that they exist are going to be harmful and 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 probably leave a net negative imprint on the world. Like wrestling gives people joy and pleasure, and like so do many other forms of entertainment. So like they're not all bad, you know. And like I think people you know find meaning and 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 in their lives from doing it, and like it's art to a lot of the people who are involved in it. So I'm not going to say like it's a useless endeavor. Like who the fuck am I? Like I'm I'm not doing anything so great either. But like I um, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's worthwhile to pretend that the negative aspects don't exist either. So, but like, yeah, I think that's what, that's part of what the Benoit thing made me realize. So like my, ever since then, I think my relationship with wrestling has been love, hate. I still love it. You know, obviously I'm still excited to watch it. I am very, very reticent to hold up anybody involved as a, some sort of hero though. Like I, I'm, I'm always trying to keep myself at a little bit of an, an arm's length from it that's you know and i don't want to sound like pious because like again i'm just some fucking asshole but like um i that's part of why you know for trevor and i we've decided like we don't want to make any money off of through the years like we don't you know we, we certainly don't want any advertisers or we don't want you know do a patreon for it or anything like that we're just like this is a hobby this is not how we want to make our money at least not at this point um that's not to say there's anything wrong with people making money from wrestling. Like I think you know you make Where did money. Where the money go that I gave you to be on the show? Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, I you know I give that money to all sorts of wonderful charities. Um, okay, good. Yes. If it um, went to pay uh, P flag, we're good. Yes. Yeah. I, again, I'm not trying to denigrate anyone who makes money off of wrestling or podcasts. Or like like people, you need to live. Like this world is freaking hard. But like just for me and my own peace of mind. I, I, you know, and maybe I'm a, uh, a, a pretentious piece of crap, but like, that's, that's just makes me feel better. Well, I don't think we should talk about Ring of Honor anymore. I think that's probably a good end to that conversation. So, yeah. um, Matt, uh, before we, uh, move on with the rest of the show, um, what would you like to, uh, promote? Now that we know you're not going to get some money off of it. Well, Matt, whenever you're on through the years, you always promote these like wonderful causes and charities and uh, and stuff like that. So I'm not going to be able to match you for that, but uh, I I certainly am want to show solidarity with you and every cause that you champion because I think that's amazing. I, I will promote through the years. I, people do like the podcast. It is a you can find it on anywhere you get your podcast. We have our own feed. We're also on the Pro Wrestling Only, or is it now Pro Wrestling Mostly Podcast Network? I'm on um, it, and I, you're listening to it right now. Yes, I don't know what it's called. So right, um, I'm but, a bad so, uh, person on. But if you found this podcast, you can find through the years on the same feed, and we are very proud to be members of this feed, and we have been for many years now. We're all, you could also find us on YouTube. I also want to promote my 
co-host, or actually the real host of Through the Years, Trevor Dame, he has a fantastic Twitter. Everyone loves Trevor. Um, he uh, he was just on Voices of Wrestling, did a great show on their uh, their bonus uh, No, don't listen to that. I asked him. He didn't promote Nikki Bella for the Hall of Fame, so we're just oh, so okay. that Don't listen to him on Voices of Wrestling, talking about the Hall of Fame. Don't listen to that podcast. Um, but yeah, also just... Um, um, want to say um, uh, I'll say it. I don't know if you don't mind me saying this. Get vaccinated if you haven't. Uh, you should get a booster, I think, if you can. Uh, things, you know, this pandemic is not over. Um, wear a mask indoors with people because why not, right? Like, why, why not? Why not do a small thing that could protect a lot of people? Um, things like that. You know, treat everybody with kindness. Um, respect, um, respect each other. Respect people of all Races, genders, religions, um, you know, uh, sexual orientations, all that good stuff. And um, and just you know, peace, love, happiness, um, and a, uh, a wonderful holiday season if you celebrate any of those holidays. Awesome. Oh, and uh, for the people listening at home, uh, your pronouns? Uh, my pronouns are he and him and his. Thank you very much. Thank you for, thank you for asking. Um, and uh, yeah, now we'll go back... Uh, Back into my top, we're into the top 10 of my 1997 uh, Greatest Wrestlers of the Year. So, we're right back. Thank you. I thought I saw a man born to life. He was warm, he came around. Thank you, Matt, for that, uh, for joining us here. Uh, but it, it's time for the top 10 of 1997 workers, uh, at least based on my list and my viewing. Um, earlier in the show, we went through numbers 25 through number 11. Um, so I, I guess you sitting at home could probably... Maybe make a guess on the top ten. Maybe not. But uh, I guess uh, quickly write them down on a pad of paper and see how well you do at guessing. Uh, I'll give you a moment now to do that. All right. So on to the top ten. Uh, let's start with number ten. Uh, and this was probably the hardest person uh, of the entire uh, year to uh, rank. Because they retired in uh, the end of April. So they only worked four months. Uh, but what a four months. Um, basically, they worked all of the Joshi promotions, going around, having great matches uh, in a variety of different ways, uh, from street fights to barbed wire matches to just regular matches that were great uh, in a variety of promotions. Uh, variety of uh, companies. So uh, Megumi Kuto was number 10 um, and just unbelievable for four months and then retires. So what do you do with that? Um, I guess in my head that makes her number 10. Uh, but damn, what what a fucking wrestler. I, if 1997 is any indication, uh, Kuto in 1996 is, is Probably gonna do very well whenever I get to that year. Um, I would say the 
the probably the best one is from uh, Best Match, would be January 5th from LLPW against uh, Shinobi Kandori in a street fight. Uh, but really, uh, you know, she had barbed wires with Ozaka that were great, regular matches with Bison Kimura, uh, other matches with Kandori, uh, and just a variety of others. And every time she's out there, she just looks like a fucking world beater. Uh, but yeah, retired in May, so or end of April, so you can't put her way too high, but oh boy, that's difficult. So let's move on to number nine. Uh, we talked about her partner earlier, uh, but Mimi Shimuda from LCO uh, goes slightly higher uh, than her partner at Sukamido, who I had at 12. Uh, in, well, she had a, a great singles match with Naomi Toyota from August 10th, um, and I couldn't find a great singles match from Mita. And if they were all, both of them were in an amazing tag team having a great matches with everyone, and then one of them also has a great singles match, then they go a little bit higher. Uh, I, I, I guess you can make the argument Mita is slightly better in the tag team, but and that's that's difficult. Um, but yeah, LCO, absolutely unbelievable throughout the year. Uh, and yeah, that uh, Toyota singles match from August 10th uh, from the Grand Prix is an unbelievable match. Uh, you should check that out. I had an 8.75 rating, which is almost uh, greatest match ever level. Um, just slightly below that for me as my uh, dog takes a drink of water, which you may or may not hear on this lovely podcast. But I'm not going to edit it out, so you all can enjoy the ASMR. Uh, that's going on now. Let's move on to number eight. Um, and this is, uh, this is the Rocket Owen Hart, who, um, yeah, they, they had a fucking, I don't know, maybe you can call it a career year, maybe not. Um, maybe, I think it's probably their last, like, super great year. Um, sadly, uh, because they, they probably had a lot left in them. Uh, but Owen Hart, unbelievable here. He uh, he starts the year teaming and feuding with his uh, brother-in-law, Davy Boy. Um, and they have a bunch of great tag matches uh, early on, especially with Furnace and uh, Crawford. Um And then, uh, yeah, they have... He has this little mini feud with Davy Boy, his brother-in-law. They have a great match in the finals of the European title tournament. Um, that would probably be the match I showcase. It's from March 3rd on Raw from Germany. Um, absolutely astounding performance. And Owen here is just um, playing the character of, like, because he's in Germany and he's facing his brother-in-law where he's trying to be, like, fair and square and then starts to cheat later on. Oh, it's, it's such a great performance. Uh, and he's also doing the... Uh, he, he kind of does the Lex Luger uh, Sting thing from uh, WCW in 96, where he is more of a heel behind Davey Boy's back, uh, which is fun because they're both heels, but like Davey Boy was trying to be a little more straight and narrow there. Uh, and then obviously um, after WrestleMania, Brett Rehart forms the Hart Foundation. They, they go full-blown heel. They have a lot of great tag matches. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people point to the Michaels-Austin one. 
Um, you know, and then there's the Canadian Stampede. He has the great match at SummerSlam with Austin, but it injures him. Uh, and then a lot of good stuff throughout the end of the year. And then comes back strong at the end of the year with uh, um, challenging Shawn Michaels. So absolutely astounding year. And he's just on fire as not only a wrestler, but as a character. Um, yeah, so Owen Hart, 1997. Uh, we'll get on the list here. Uh, boy. The rest of the people here have a long list of matches in their name, so I'll try to refrain from mentioning them all. Um, but number seven is uh, Kyoko Inoue, who uh, was the uh, the main champion in All Japan Women for uh, the year. She actually uh, like unified some titles. They kind of did a weird triple crown thing. Actually, on January 20th, <laughs> uh, conveniently, uh, to... Um, the same time as that uh, famous Kibashi Masawa match. Uh, she has a match with her, with Kyoko Inoue, uh, to unify titles. Um, that wouldn't be the, the greatest match of the year. It's a little awkward at points, but it's definitely database worthy. Um, I think the only thing that holds Kyoko back this year from being higher uh, is that there's no match I would put on a greatest match ever list. Um, I think even like her best matches are a little below that level. But every performance she has is great, and she has a lot of matches that make a database. Um, so uh, kudos to her for here. Another great year. Um, what match would I highlight that I haven't mentioned yet from other people involved? Oh, she had a really cool match uh, from Daya. From September twentieth against uh, Miko, a very young Miko Satamura. Um probably the first time chronologically I'll mention Miko Satamura for one of these lists. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really good uh, veteran rookie match. Um, I'll showcase that as a good example of how good Kyoko Inoue was. Number six. Um, we're gonna go with uh, Rey Mysterio. Junior here. Um, I know everyone talks about the Halloween Havoc match. I think I mentioned it earlier, but uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. was not a one-trick pony in 1997 by far. Um, he was all over WCW and then also uh, had a lot of matches in Mexico, which were also very good. Uh, probably the match I'd showcase, and this is a uh, a fascinating match, something you normally don't see from Rey Mysterio. Um, it's a Masters Mass match from December 19th in WWA uh, versus Mysterioso, uh, which is kind of more of a wild, like, arena brawl. Um, it's Mysterio selling a lot, uh, and it, it, it's kind of more out of control. Um, so he has a performance like that, but, and obviously the Halloween Havoc match, and then a bunch of great matches on WCW undercards, and not just cruiserweight matches like you know he has a you know has one with Ultimo Dragon you mentioned earlier uh from Spring Stampede but like he had a series with Regal which is really good he he had a feud with Prince Iakea of all people uh so he, he definitely showed a lot more range than he had in the past um to do a variety of things and um obviously Rey Mysterio Jr. uh throughout this project of top 25s of each year will be appearing uh, multiple times. But uh, um, 1997, 
might be the height of his like high flying years. Um, maybe not. He he's he's so damn good. Um, let's go to number uh, number five here. Uh, Aja Kong. Obviously, uh, wow, she was number six in nineteen ninety. That's, that's interesting. Um, but Aja Kong, uh, another great year. Um, still at the top of the cards uh, in All Japan Women. Still a kick-ass monster. Uh, I mentioned the tag. Uh, yeah, I mentioned the tag match earlier with uh, her and Kyoko Inoue versus LCO as like a wild out of control stuff. She also had a great singles match. I know everyone likes to point to the August 20th match with Naomi Toyota, which is a great match. Um, but Aja Kong still on fire in 1997. Uh, she isn't the ace of the company anymore, but she's still damn great. And Aja Kong at her badassness self is always something to withhold. Um, so definitely yeah, Aja Kong, great year in 1997. Uh, and now before we get to the top three, we have one more here. Uh, number four, uh, someone I ranked in my GWE list in 2016. And then when I started thinking about 2026, I was like, yeah, maybe not. Like, probably this person might drop off. Uh, 1990, obviously, I didn't take a look at them. But uh, 1997, Koji Kanemoto. Um, I, I talked about the New Japan junior heavyweights and how on fire all of them were throughout the year. And Koji Kanemoto, I thought, kind of had the best performances against each of them. Um, and he was just at another level of dickery. <laughs> which I kind of love. He was just slapping people and kicking them and uh, mocking them while he completely destroyed them as, like, just so mean. So, so mean and so such a badass. Um, unbelievable performances. Um, and, uh, I, I guess we'll mention the Liger match from October 25th. Uh, another uh, great performance uh, there, because I've kind of mentioned a bunch of his other matches that were more higher end, but the El Samurai matches still, uh, if you didn't take a note to watch it from the uh, the, pre the bottom half of my list, uh, take a note to watch it here. Um, but Koji Kimoto just just kicking everyone's ass. That's such a mean. Such a, so mean. <laughs> he was so mean uh, this year. Um, man, I hope he's this good in other years because that would be a joy to watch. So let's move into the top three. And, uh, yeah, this Manomi Toyota, number three. So I'm going through Joshi chronologically. Um, and I'm at... And we're doing this every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Discord for a watching party. We're, we're going through pretty much all of Joshi. Uh, we're in May of 93. So, uh, join us on Sundays, uh, and you can watch along and chat along while we watch that. It's great fun. Um, and Miami Toyota, 
I always, uh, up to this point when I'm watching her, like, she's obviously great. Like, um, especially in tag matches, like, she has unbelievable, uh, moves and performances. Um, she's an insane athlete. She can do things that almost no one else can do. Uh, she's, she might have took up yoga earlier than anyone else, and she, she can be put into submissions that no one else can be put into at the time. Uh, it's really unbelievable watching her. Um, a lot of the problems with Toyota comes from the fact that when she goes on offense, she kind of just ignores everything else that happened. Uh, and up to 1993, um, when you're in tag matches, that's well hidden. Um, but when she's in singles matches, People kind of work on her leg and she like sells it while she's in the move. And the moment that move ends, she's like, I'm going to do 10 drop kicks in a row. And it's extremely frustrating because she's so fucking talented. Uh, but that's, we're in 1993 there. So when I came to 1997 uh, and I went to watch some stuff, I, you know, I expected kind of the same Toyota, but I'm not sure if it was selection bias or what it was, but. Fucking my only Toyota selling the leg. <laughs> Even when she goes back on offense, she's, she's having like just unbelievable matches with everyone. Um, she's, she's incorporated a lot of Sabu stuff for some reason, a bunch of matches where she's using the table and just being absolutely nutty. Um, obviously her, her moves are just getting more and more. Uh, amazing as she she goes around uh, comes along in her career um, but in 1997 at least the stuff I watched she really has figured out the storytelling psychology a lot better um, and not just kind of like destroying the story so that cool shit could happen <laughs> she, she's she's less Michael Bay and more Christopher Nolan I guess uh, so yeah, and like her fucking batting average is out of this world <laughs> whenever you go to star ratings on matches. Uh, so yeah, Toyota number three. Um, did not expect that when I started 1997. Did not expect her to be in top three for any year. Uh, but well, there she fucking is right there. Um, I think I've mentioned most of her great matches that I've seen, uh, but Really, everything I saw, even stuff that didn't make my database, which obviously I didn't note here, was always damn good. So, Miami Toyota number three. Yeah. Um, maybe I gotta stop bashing her. Maybe it's just an early career thing. Like, she was young and she didn't know how to sell. Um, I guess we'll see as we go along if she, uh, she, if this was a fluke <laughs> or if she actually figured shit out. Maybe that's why people call her the goat. I don't think she is, but maybe that's why. Uh, but I, I don't think so. Um, so let's move on. Wow, we're down to two people. As I pause to drink some water. We're down to two people here. Um, one I expected to be in the top two. The other one I didn't, I didn't know who to expect for 1997 to be my top two. But when I started watching stuff, it became fucking so insanely obvious that uh, my number two would be El Hilo Del Santo. Um, 
Yeah. El Hijo del Santo, man. Uh, I always think of Negro Houses as better, but I think I need to reevaluate that. Because Santo, obviously, he starts the year as a heel, which is cool. Because um, he's a babyface the rest of his career. So there was that heel turn in late 96. Uh, and in early 97. And that, that famous uh, Cybernetico, you never think about. But he's on the... <laughs> is he on the heel side? He's on the fucking heel side. Um, which is wild to think about <laughs> while Negro Casas is on the babyface side. Um, and, you know, obviously that match made my greatest match ever list. Um, but, you know, that's obviously not the be-all, end-all. I watched a bunch of Santo and, like, everything was great. Um, uh, and not just CML. Like, he had that great match with Psychosis in promos Azteca. He had a bunch in promos at Azteca that's really good. Um, I mentioned a lot of his matches as earlier, but um, I'll, I'll mention there was a, a really great singles match from July 4th with El Felino, um, which he puts on another crazy uh, great performance as he's back to being babyface. And as a babyface, man, his selling, his fire, uh, his smoothness of uh, submissions. Uh, obviously, he's a, such a graceful high flyer. Uh, and the sympathy and the connection to the crowd he has is really almost unmatched by anyone. Um, so just unbelievable. And just watch, like, you don't have to watch the big matches, but, like, if you just throw on a, even, like, a random trios match from CLL from 1997, um, you'll see Al Santo, his, even if he's just in there for a couple minutes, you'll see something's, you can't really deny it's not special. Um, and it would be really hard for me to put anyone else over my number one. Um, and we'll get over that in a second. But uh, El Hilo del Santo definitely challenged for number one. And that's kind of wild. Uh, if Once you, you get to my number one, you'll see why. Um, man, so good. El Hilo del Santo... Uh, uh, I, I think so many people have said so much about Santo that it, I don't really need to add too much more, but uh, yeah. Watch his stuff. Especially 97. He's on like a super level there. My number one uh, coming into this, I thought it was obvious that it was going to be my number one. Uh, and then, you know, there got to be a little bit of doubt with Santo nipping at their heels, which kind of shocked me. Um, and the big argument you can make is that uh, they took the last two months of the year off due to um, switching promotions. Uh, so that would be your big argument you can make against them, but holy fucking hell. Bret Hart in 1997 um, is a level of wrestler that you don't get to see very often uh, and hitting it on every single level. Um, so as a, as a preface for my bias, um, I was born in 1980. So throughout 1997, uh, up until a little after the screw job, I was 16 living in Canada <laughs> And this was not like the 
Uh, part of the reason Bret Hart's run this year is so memorable is the character work, and we'll get into his actual in-ring work in a moment, but he was tapping into this Fuck America vibe um, in 1997, and uh, I'll tell you, as a 16-year-old in Canada at the time, that was that was there, uh, and we were definitely feeling it, and um, the fact that he could work as starting the year as a babyface, uh, but like one that was teasing kind of a heel turn for like three months. And then he turns heel, but he only turns heel in, in like one location, which is so fucking awesome. I know so many people have talked about this, but uh, man, seeing him heel in America one week and then a baby face in Canada or England or Germany or wherever they travel the next week and not a like you see wrestlers on the indies or whatever or you see them like work one place and work another and they just like you know they work completely different they're completely different characters so they can work a heel someplace and a baby face some another place and they're uh you can kind of cut it off as like they're different places. So they're just different characters. But I think part of the genius here was Bret Hart was working in babyface in Canada, but he didn't like change his character from the one, the heel in America. Like he would still do some of the cheating. He would still have the same kind of arrogance, say the same words even. Uh, and it worked so fucking brilliantly uh, to be the number one heel one week on Raw and the number one baby face the next week on Raw just based on location and not actually having to alter what they were doing to perform that much um, and not have it come off as like fake entertainment. But like, obviously, Bret Hart has a level of authenticity uh, that the majority of wrestlers don't have. Um, it's probably part of the reason um, I and so many people like CM Punk so much because he also has such authenticity. Um, and to do that throughout the year uh, in, in such a different settings is unbelievable. So that's all character work. Um, and it's so good. But when you get into the ring, like, what, what is Bret Hart doing in the ring in 1997, right? Um, how do I want to do this? He fucking ruled. Um, obviously, everyone knows about the Bret Hart match at WrestleMania. Um, well, let's run this down. So, January, it's a Royal Rumble. Uh, he's having, like, a mini feud on TV with Vader, which is producing good matches, which is cool. Um but he gets the Royal Rumble, has a good Royal Rumble performance. Um, uh, and then, uh, obviously, there's a weird screw job, which uh, is kind of fascinating in retrospect, <laughs> which leads to um, the In Your House in February, which is the, the four-way with the final four people from the Royal Rumble that were illegally thrown out and Steve Austin, or sorry, the final three that were illegally thrown out and Steve Austin, who illegally threw them out, uh, battling for the title, and that's a fucking great match. Uh, Bret Hart kind of pulls it all together. Uh, Vader is a bloody mess. 
Austin's kind of injured earlier and it's kind of taken out, but great Bret Hart performance. And that's an all time great match. If you haven't seen that one, it's a weird four way match where it's pin submission or throw over the top, but there's a lot of stuff on the floor. Uh, uh, it's really, really good. Uh, obviously we get the WrestleMania. He has the Bret Hart, uh, the Steve Austin submission match, which at WrestleMania, which is an all time classic, uh, a 10 rating for me. Um, where he turns heel uh, in America. Uh, uh, and then he reforms the Heart Foundation. He actually has some good matches on Raw with uh, a really young Rock, um, <laughs> which kind of looked like he would win the IC title for some reason. Um, but uh, yeah, another great stuff. Uh, we go into the April pay-per-view. He was supposed to face Sid, but I guess uh, Sid left the country, so they replaced him with Austin. Obviously, because um, why the fuck not? Would you run that again, right? Uh, they have another amazing match. Uh, I rated as an eight on that pay per view. Um, oh yeah, he actually misses a little extra time here because after that, he uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's the next night, but if it, or if it's a few weeks later, they have the um, street fight on Raw between Austin and Brett, which is also awesome in a different way, uh, which leads to Brett getting leg surgery. Um, and then he's kind of in a wheelchair for about a month, uh, here. So add another month at the end of the year for him, uh, or another month off for him. Um, but yeah, he's in a wheelchair and, but during that time, he's cutting just these unbelievable promos with the Heart Foundation at his back, wheeling him around. Uh, there, there's the great moments where he's on the stage and Austin sees him alone and attacks him and all that stuff. That's great. Uh, he was supposed to come back at King of the Ring and face Shawn Michaels in, like, the weirdest step. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but it was, like, uh, Brett vs. Austin, or, sorry, Brett vs. Shawn, there was, like, a 15-minute time limit. Each of the Heart Foundation members were supposed to be, like, handcuffed to the ring, and, like, if Brett didn't beat Shawn, he had to leave America. Uh, and I forgot what Brett got if he beat Sean. But, like, that was the original step. And I guess uh, Brett just needed a little bit more time before he came back. Um, so he comes back in July. Obviously, the Canadian Stampede is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, we roll into the, the summer, spring, uh, summer, fall, boy. Uh, and he has two awesome matches with The Undertaker, um, one at uh, SummerSlam where he wins the title, and then one night only, which is a, kind of a forgotten classic uh, from England, uh, a nine rating from me, uh, where they just go for like 30 minutes and just have a classic with an absolutely wild crowd. Um, around that time, he also has a really good match on TV with Gold Dust uh, from like MSG. Uh, then he has this like mini feud with the Patriot and he has like a singles match with the Patriot that's really good um, which you didn't expect there's a bunch of flag like six man and tag matches uh, they're all very good except for the pay-per-view one because the pay-per-view one's like that Brian Pillman dies and um, the only people that actually work on that card good is uh, Sean and Undertaker everyone else is like too um, too hurt or uh, too shocked. Um, so that's, that's fair. Um, 
and then that rolls into uh, him leaving in November. But like leading up to that, there's like really good matches with Shamrock on TV, um, and obviously you know more six mans, all that stuff. Uh, all great performances, and then the Survivor Series match with Sean, which if it didn't have a fucked finish, like a really fucked up finish, uh, it would have been an all time classic match as well. Just absolutely unbelievable that like you know they cut like the last 10 minutes of the match to screw brett over on but just an unbelievable match up to that point and just another amazing brett performance so he leaves mid-november uh and then joins wcw and doesn't wrestle to january but um uh, that's kind of brett's year there uh and oh and i forgot in september also he did that terry funk retirement show where he faced terry funk and had another fucking classic match so not just WWF stuff for him. Um, but yeah, Brett, 1997, one of the best years by any wrestler ever. And I know I'm a biased Canadian when I talk about that. And I can't help it because I am who I am. But I think even if you're not a biased Canadian, you can see how great Brett was in 1997. And if you just kind of watch everything, uh, you're going to walk away just being blown away by um, having brawls, having technical matches, being a dickish heel, working as a babyface, but also like a, a subtle heel babyface to uh, his performances and like multi-mans are great. Uh, and you can tell he's just having a lot of fun and his, his, um, everything about him in 1977. So Brett, number one, 1997, uh, the year of the hitman. So, thank you. That's 1997. Um, we're going to, for the next podcast, because it's going to come out in January, probably early January. Um, obviously, the, uh, the choice to do would be 2021. So, we're going to step up the years uh, to be a lot more modern. Um, at this point, I've basically watched the big AEW, the big WWE, a bunch of random, uh, most of the Impact Women's matches, a bunch of random Indie Women's matches, um, and uh, pretty much every startup match. <laughs> so, some randy, random Joshi outside of that. So, I'll try to watch some other stuff to get it a little more rounded with the people that um, people think I should watch. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what that list looks like. Uh, come January, it'll be a lot more topical. Um, I also, I think I'm, uh, if my interview planning works out, it's going to be a topical interview as well uh, for the, the modern times. So it's going to be like a modern episode of Maybe Not Tally. So look forward to that. Uh, but that, is not it for this podcast because obviously some people have some questions and I am going to provide them with some answers up next. Alright, 
it's time to go to the good old mailbag, as they say, but really the mail text file on my laptop. Um, so I'm going to be picking, we're going to stick with the three questions, three questions each podcast. Um, I have a little bit of a backlog, but I would love more questions. So I have more choices to pick from. Uh, how do you send me a question? Um, you can send it in many ways. Uh, there's a thread on pro wrestling only. There is, um, you can hit me up on Twitter, which is Stephen Graham TWS. Uh, you can email GWE26 at Outlook.com. Um, but really, I'll accept a question anywhere. DM me on the Discord. Uh, if you send me some physical mail, if you approach me on the street, um, if you any way you can think of to send me a message, I'll accept it uh, as a question and put it into my master file and then select three for every podcast. Um, how do I select them? I have no idea. Uh, whatever. Uh, there's no criteria. So if yours doesn't get selected, it probably will be on a future episode. Um, if you want it selected, I don't know, make it in a way that I can't deny not asking it on the next podcast. I don't know how you do that. You have to read my mind. Uh, so good luck with that. But I'll, I'll try to answer all the questions over the course of that. Maybe I'll do even, if I have a backlog of questions, whenever I get to 2026, I'll just answer them all in like a special episode if there's anything I missed. So keep them coming in. I'll answer them all. And they don't have to be GW related. They can be anything. Uh, if you want to know, um, you know, what's my favorite book or, um, what, what's, uh, I don't know, whatever. I'll, I'll answer whatever questions, just whatever you guys want to hear. Um, so let's get on to these questions. Um, man, a lot of good questions, a lot of good people. Uh, let's start with um, someone that's uh, on the Discord. Uh, I see they're on the watch party, so I really appreciate that. Um, good old Mad Wizard. Uh, and they asked me, do you think Jumbo Saruta will place higher or lower than 2016? Which is kind of fascinating because in 2006, he was number one. Uh, in 2016, he was number 11. So the question is, is he going to go back up or is he going to continue to drop? Uh, that's literally your question. Uh, there is the option that he stays at number 11. Uh, that would be difficult. It's hard to, with so many voters, to stay in the same spot. Um, but man, what do I think? Um, I think me personally, I will be lower voting on Jumbo this time compared to last time. That's me personally. And that's not what the question's asking, but me personally, just because there's so many new wrestlers I've watched and discovered and loved. Uh, but Jumbo as a whole, I think. I do think that wrestlers from the 70s and 80s are going to, over time, uh, outside of rare exceptions, are going to continue to drop as new wrestlers and voters get younger. Um, 
it's not fully true, but like that's I think the general trend will be the older you are. Um, like I think the best you can do on a GWE list is if you are like just recently retired or you're newly retired or you're like a veteran who's on their last like rate run. Like I think that's the best you're going to do on a GWE list. And if you're past that or if you're before that, um, it's more difficult for you. Uh, so the longer you get past that last run. So like if we did a GWE, I think if we did a GWE in 1991, like that would be like, you know, jumbo. Uh, and then maybe 2001, 2016, that could be jumbo. But then like, as you go on, I think it's just going to drop. So, uh, 2006, sorry, 2016, you obviously did drop. So I think you got a window after you retire. Uh, and then once that passes, you have to be a super special worker to stay super, super high. Um, and is Jumbo that special of a worker? I guess we'll find out with the next vote. Uh, but my prediction would be that he would drop from 11 down. And I'm going to even throw out a number here so you can all write this down. My prediction is that Jumbo will be 29th. Write that down. Let's see how well I do four years out. All right. The second question uh, on this little um, my Q&A section here is from, oh man, this is a name I interact with on Twitter all the time and I never know how to say it. And I always like just feel bad about that, but I never, I've never said it out loud. So I'm going to say Ishratana. Deadheadish, at Deadheadish is their Twitter name. Um, a great follower, a great listener of the show. I appreciate it. And here's their question, uh, which is, even though I love the GWE projects, why do you think people have been more excited or at least involved in GW26 or GW26? 20, yeah. More involved in GW26 or GW2016. I want to say 2016. I hate, I don't know why GW16 doesn't roll off the tongue. Uh, then in the greatest match ever project. Personally, top 100 lists of matches is more interesting to compile and look at than the wrestlers. I have heard so many people say I have an easier time ranking wrestlers to matches. And I've seen so many people say I have an easier time ranking matches to wrestlers. I have an easier time ranking. I don't know. That's, that's, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. But some people have a clear answer on that. And it's very fascinating. I wonder how the way you consume wrestling has a factor on which you have an easier time ranking. Um, but why would one project be more popular than the other? First out. Shout out to the Greatest Match Ever project. Uh, the voting was done a couple weeks ago in late November. Uh, the results are being rolled out now. Uh, Tim Livingston and I each produced our top 100 lists and did a podcast on it on the Pro Wrestling Super Show, episode 74. Check that out on this very network. Uh, and I'll have a link to the Greatest Match Ever 
project form uh, in the description here, so you can check that out. Um, and they do votes yearly. Um, they might change that in the future, but they do votes yearly. And I think I started the forum, so <laughs> it's also weird. Uh, but why is one more important? Why is one more active than the other? Um, I would say just because greatest wrestler ever came first and it's not as like there was time to breathe. Um, so greatest match ever, if you're doing it all the time and every year you're producing a list and it came around after like greatest wrestler ever, there was a, there was a vote in 20, 2006, there was a vote in 2016. And now there's a vote in 2026. So there's like, you know, there's time to like have some time off and then get excited about it and then come back to it as opposed to it being like a, a thing all the time. Uh, that would be my guess. Uh, I guess we'll see in 2026 who votes. <laughs> like we had, we had 250 voters in 2016. Um, we clearly don't have 250 people actively like on the Discord or Provost and only talking about the project. Uh, I would love there'd be way more than that, but uh, clearly there's not. But there's going to be definitely a lot of voters who didn't, who don't, uh, don't make their voices heard throughout the process. Um, so who knows? Uh, maybe the voters will be less than the greatest match ever project. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that'd be my prediction. Uh, not my prediction. That's, that's kind of my thoughts. Um, it's just a shame. I, I would love, uh, both to be super active. Um, there is now a spot on the Discord for the greatest match ever project. So there is actually quite a bit of discussion going on there. So, um, hopefully that will, um, there'll be a way for people to, uh, keep involved with that throughout the year. Um, so yeah, greatest match ever though. Fun, fun stuff. Um, Real fun producing my list and seeing the results roll out. So, a uh, big shout out to Cap and Elliot and Cad and all of those people running that. Um, I, I wish I was more active in it. So, the final question for this week is uh, a question from Elliot. Uh, this one was post posted on Pro Wrestling Only. Um, this is a, I'm going to be honest here. This is a question I asked him to ask me. <laughs> so it's a question made up for me uh, because I thought I was going to do the 80s next month. But uh, obviously we're doing 2020, uh, 2021. So this question I'm, I probably could have hold, held off on. Uh, but uh, we'll do it here. So this is a question. Uh, if a wrestler is a shitty human being in real life, does it affect how you'll rank them? Um, so this is a big topic. And I know a lot of people have different views and, um, I can only tell you my view. I, I can't tell other people how to feel, uh, and what they're comfortable with. Um, so a lot of people, me included, didn't vote for Chris Benoit in 2016. Um, and I think a lot of people understood that. Some people did. That's fine too. They can do whatever they would like. Um, and I don't know 
why in my head in 2016 murder was a line and anything up to that line was cool um things have changed um i i never found a lot of other things acceptable but clearly in the past they didn't like make me completely turn off of someone um but here we are it's 2021 um the world is how it is and for me how shitty a human being does it change how i rank them that's i think an inaccurate description of what's going on here um to vote for someone in GWE, I think you need to watch them. And the question is, do I want to watch someone who is a shitty human being? It's going to deter me a little bit, right? So I'm not going to watch them as much. So if I'm not watching them as much, it's not easier to rank them. But is being a shitty human being the line? Like, um, I'm sure there's way more wrestlers that I'm ranking that are shitty human beings. Um, shitty human beings is not the line for me. My line is like, no, sexual assault, <laughs> bigotry, racism, transphobia. Those are the lines. And if I know a wrestler is that, uh, if they've, done sexual abuses, if they've done sexual assaults, if they've you know, raped people, if they're a racist, if they're a homophobe, if they're a, um, if they're a transphobe, I, I never want to watch that wrestler again. I'm sorry. And if I can't, if I don't want to watch that wrestler again, how am I going to rank them? I can't, right? So, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not going to be putting Ric Flair on any of these top 25 lists. Ric Flair is a racist. Ric Flair is a sexual abuser. Ric Flair is a piece of shit. I, I don't want to watch Ric Flair wrestle ever again. Um, and if I don't want to watch him ever again, what am I going to do? Rank him based on my memory? Memory fucking sucks. My memory skills are horrible. <laughs> I can't remember, you know, what I had for breakfast yesterday. Uh, what am I going to do? Just like think about my memories of Ric Flair and go, well, based on my thoughts 10 years ago, I have to put him this high? No, fuck that. I have to rewatch and reevaluate. And obviously Ric Flair is not the only one on that list. There's many, many <laughs> wrestlers. Uh, I guess as we go around the top 25 list of each year, you'll see who's left out. And um, I guess you can ask me if they're left out for that reason or if they're left out because I don't think they're that great. Um, that would be uh, a mystery that you can solve with a question um, if you would like. Um, 1997, which we just did, I don't think any were left out for Shinji. Um, there wasn't any wrestlers I didn't watch because they were Shinji. Um, so, None that I can think of. Um, 2021, uh, <laughs> most of the shitty, a lot of the shitty humans were uh, luckily like 
forced to not wrestle. <laughs> like a lot of the ones that are like accused of stuff. Sadly, there's a bunch that are still wrestling and I won't be ranking them. But it is what it is. Let's try to together clean up the wrestling business because I really don't want something that I love and is entertaining to be filled with abusers. Um, so, and I don't want them to keep out other potential people because of their bigotry. Um, that's not the wrestling world I want. That's not the world I want. Uh, I don't think anyone wants that. Well, there is people, but I don't think anyone who is a good person wants that. So let's try to think about that and see if there's a way that we as lowly fans can help make this place more inviting. Um, I think wrestling for everyone is for everyone is a great slogan and I wish it was true and I would love that to be true. I don't know how to get there. Um, I don't know what we can do, but if anyone has some ideas, uh, definitely let's, let's work towards that. Um, that's a dour note <laughs> to end the, uh, the maybe not Tawei podcast for this episode. Uh, so let's, um, I'm sorry, but cheer up. 2021 was a really good year for wrestling. And we're going to be talking about that next podcast where I do my top 25 list of that year. Uh, you can hear me talk about stardom a lot, probably. <laughs> uh, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a nice guest to also talk about something that is currently, um, going on in the wrestling business. And, um, I'll, I'll, just for you guys, I'll pick questions that are all positive too. So we'll, we'll end the show on a nice note next time. And then maybe we'll go back to the dour questions <laughs> in the future. But, uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, and, um, I'll, I'll see you on the Twitter machine and on the Discord and the watch parties. Have a good day.